be full of fright. I dreamt that I was with the devil below in his great big fiery hall, where the devil was giving a ball. I checked my coat and hat and started gazing at the merry crowd who came to witness the show, and I must confess to you, there were many there I knew. Hello. Hi. At the devil's ball. At the devil's ball. The best thing about being gay is you double your wardrobe. I mean, it's just that's the best it. thing about it. That's true. Yeah. Dang. Mine, mine steals all my underwear and socks, and it's very upsetting. <laughs> uh, well, actually, mine is 6'5", and so this shirt is like swallows me which yeah, is, I, I, kinda, <laughs> I feel your pain it just <laughs> makes you seem very you know european and loose yes. i've always wanted to be loose believe me loose has been my goal so <laughs> we are keeping him away from his bourbon right now oh dear yeah. oh dear true that isn't loose what happens when you pour water in absinthe and ouzo loose very true is that the word it is is, is it, it the same word well it's l-o-u-c-h-e yeah. You mean it's the actual word for what happens this is the process? The re- the like graying reaction is the louche. Had really? no idea. Had so no idea either. What well then like the word I don't you even drink. Used, what does it mean when you say louche? Like, you know, just kind of um just like fabulously dissolute. Yeah, third you know? button day. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Wow. It says on my friend Miriam Webster tells me. And mm-hmm. Miriam is always right. Miriam tells me that the word is literally from the French meaning cross-eyed. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Who knew? So, so there you go. From the Latin, luscus, blind in one eye. Wow. Wow. I, I, I like, I want to be louche in the kind of way that I know what louche means. I just yeah. want to precipitate out of a solution. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to interrupt this fine banter to let people know that this is the Dispatches podcast, a friendly conversation about hell and some other stuff. And Loosh. with me this week are... There's Victoria, right there. There's, there's Jamin. I'm pointing at him right now, I think. Who's that? Who's that in the corner? Well, I, oh, hi, Mark. Hi, hi Mark. Mark. Am I supposed to say something here? You're welcome to. Yes, there's not really a script. This is Mark Scarborough, the host of Walking with Dante, whom we have been mentioning every 35 seconds for the last two episodes. It was very convenient. He was traveling through Dis. We were living in Dis, and we just kind of met at just the right moment. So, so glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. And I'm glad to be in yet another hellscape. So <laughs> I, it's, it's where I find most of my friends. So I'm glad to be there. <laughs> All the best people are in the hellscape. Oh, God, for sure. I mean, holy hell. <laughs> what are the saints? They just sit around and I don't know what, drink nectar. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, the, you know, uh, the saints are one thing, but the damned are another. And so, <laughs> what can I say? Did anybody bring anything to the party? Did I bring to the party? Do you want to know what I brought to the party? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Sure. Oh, sure. I brought the game Shoots and Ladders because I think that that is the perfect game of how hell works. Hmm. So hmm. I'm bringing the game Shoots and Ladders. It captures it's, the arbitrariness of the experience. Mm, does it ever. And it <laughs> captures the way it's never quite the same under your feet. Um, <laughs> just when you think you get the rules down, the rules change like crazy. <laughs> they, they so, make new additions for that every three or four years with like revised rules, I assume. <laughs> probably there's probably all kinds of ways that they can change shoots and ladders, but I think it's the best 
dang for hell. So. I also brought some entertainment. Uh, being chased by minotaurs through the forest of self-abusers. <laughs> that mm. sounds fun. It's kind of mix or match, yeah. Mm. That sounds like my idea of fun. Any treats? I actually took a page from Victoria's book, and I brought a diorama. <gasps> I built what? the city of Dis using nothing but sliced avocados. <laughs> wow. I like the way it's slowly collapsing into the swamp. <laughs> and the red flickering flames at the top is actually sriracha sauce. So nice it's touch. very, yeah, yeah. Nice. This sounds really messy. Would you like a toothpick? Mm. Yes, yes. And a lot of, of those lemon fresh wet naps. Mm. This <laughs> is sounds, yeah, not finger food. No. It, it sounds like my dating life. So um, <laughs> finger a green, food? A, a green mess. Uh, toothpicks, <laughs> green mess. I'll <laughs> think. That's like my dating life. Wow. Just, I'm so excited. This sounds very both educational and delicious. Mm, yes. Mm. What I brought will go very well with your disarama. I brought a Gates of Hell cocktail. I brought one for everybody. I brought an alcohol-free one for Jacob. Fine. But it is tequila, lemon juice, lime juice, crushed ice, and cherry brandy. Mm. So sort of an abandoned all hope vibe altogether. Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. But you know, that'd be pretty. Yeah. 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 That'd be kind of yeah. brown. Yeah, actually it is. <laughs> to be honest, it's not super attractive. But the embrowned drink. <laughs> it is the embrowned drink, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so I know that we have a couple of questions for you, but while we're all here in this lovely city, I'd love to kind of just get started with, I think, the, the distance of it all. Yes. Um, distance of dis- it all? Distance. The state of being dis. Mm-hmm. Ah, the state of disness. Yeah. Yeah, both both puns work. Yeah. Yeah. Dis- <laughs> distance and distance. It's a two-headed yeah. pun. We're kind of in the middle of, uh, this is between eight and nine, and there's kind of a major action sequence and a lot of mentor-student disillusionment and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. a, a really chock-a-block sort of mm-hmm. canto, or two cantos, one and a half cantos. A lot happens here, and I believe that we have all really lost the plot. A number oh. of times. I th- it, those cantos are just amazing. To me, they're just amazing. That whole bit in front of the walls of Dis is just so wild. It's the plot actually comes to a dead heat, a dead halt, right? And it feels like the halfway point recapitulation musical number in a Sondheim. <laughs> <laughs> but much earlier. It does. And you get promised Medusa, but she never makes an appearance, which is really, you know, oh. a little dumbfounding. She should make an appearance, it feels like. I mean, the whole Everyone thing else is, does. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody else does. It's and, a fundamental law. If you bring in a Medusa in the seventh canto. Chekhov's oh, Medusa. Yes. yes. Chekhov. I was going to say it's Chekhov. Right. Once you mention Medusa, she's got to make an appearance, no matter what. No, I think it's fabulous. I mean, don't you think? I, I love that part because... It's just it's where Virgil starts to come in for a bit of a thrashing. Yeah. And it gets it gets worse as they go down. And poor Virgil, he just comes in for the worst of it on every front as it goes down in hell. And this starts the whole, you know, it first it's oh Virgil and how great Virgil is. But if there is really a break and the thing restarts again, part of how it restarts, how how the Inferno restarts is is maybe I've just decided to kick my mentor in the shins or 
harsh. other places too. It, <laughs> it is harsh. It gets harsher on poor Virgil as they go down. Mm-hmm. It, it's rough. We go from like the rose-colored glasses state of the first seven to a much more human relationship after that. I, I, I think there's some comparison between Virgil as like a very, very, very flawed person and that you can still like love the sinner. That's that's good. <laughs> you you can. I mean, that's the question. And most people don't find that right in 700 oh. years of commentary. Most people don't find any humanness in Virgil. The old commentators are all Virgil is this allegory of reason and he's human reason to his farthest extent. And all this. I think it's, it's a lot more interesting to see Virgil in all Virgil's Virgilness, which is that he's petty. He's irritated. He can be very quick and very, very cutting. And at the same time, he can be very fatherly. I mean, there's several times when he'll actually pick the pilgrim up and carry him, which I don't know exactly how a soul, a shade, picks up a physical body. But if you think too much about that, it'll make you thin. So don't, if, don't think too much about if it. If that's the only part of this entire book that, that throws you, then, I mean, you're better off than I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, I don't know if Jacob told you, but we have several drinking games that we've established with this. And one of them is to take a shot every time Virgil gets annoyed with Dante. Mm. And now I think oh, we have nice. to reverse that to every moment where Dante kind of like looks, you know, sort of rolls his eyes at Virgil, mm. you know. And I, and I have to say, I was super excited to hear you kind of criticize Virgil because my original before we before I even started reading this, this was kind of the ongoing gag is that I'd never read the Inferno. I had in my mind that Virgil is an unreliable narrator. I was just expecting that. And so I was kind of annoyed, like, oh, he's this, yeah, like he's this allegorical figure of of reason and he can do no wrong and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I think he's kind of a dick. You know? So I'm kind of happy to like see that playing out. Like, I was right. I was right. So. He is, and he can really, I mean, you know, when he walks up there to the walls of Dis and he can't get inside, it's it's such a bad moment. And he turns around all disconsolate and walks back to Dante. And it's really, uh, the poet back behind the scenes is really putting Virgil to the task right there. I mean, it's, and, but I don't know if you know this, but I mean, maybe this is too much to say, but in the Aeneid, when Aeneas approaches Dis... Uh, in the Aeneid, and Aeneas ca- does not enter Dis. And so Aeneas turns aside with the command civil, and they walk along the walls. And the command civil just says, oh, down there, they're really bad people. You know, the, the these types, and they're all down there. And basically, I mean, Dante's making sure that you understand he's going to go where Virgil can't go, and he's going to get where Virgil can't get. And he's making that really super clear. And it's a little bit nasty. I mean, it, <laughs> it's... <laughs> I mean, you got to be a big boy to kick a big Latin poet. Um, <laughs> so, so you're saying, Dante, like fourth wall nastiness? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like fourth oh. wall nastiness. <laughs> this, this is such like metatextual cattiness going on here because, yeah. I mean, Dante's the writer of Dante, the character who's also writing Virgil in and out of different levels of metatextuality. So he's. Mm-hmm creating his mentor to be a foil to himself as he writes the greatest poem ever. And he will tell you about it. Mm -hmm. I did notice (laughs) one thing I learned kind of over the course of uh, stealing from other people's notes is that the, this is sort of an Aristotelian construct of sin where you've got 
treachery and fraud as the base level and kind of this ninefold buildup of there. In a proper Christian conceit of the seven deadly sins, pride is the biggest one, not treachery. And I can see that we've tossed that aside completely. <laughs> right. No, no, you're about to, yeah, no, you're about to enter, right? You're going to walk through the walls of this and enter the tombs of the heretics, which is not heresy is not a sin in the traditional Christian sense of the word. And you're about to enter the tombs of the heretics, but the tombs of the heretics don't really even have anything to do with heresy. Dante's going to meet the guy that almost burned Florence to the ground in the tombs of the heretics. And then out of that same tomb is going to rise up the father of the poet who Dante himself exiled to his death. So he's, really? going, to, he's going to meet Cavalcante de Cavalcanti, whose son is the rival poet Guido Cavalcanti, who when Dante was Podesta of Florence, Dante exiled and Guido caught malaria and died in exile. So that and, bit where the nice man says, have you seen my son? Have you seen my son? Is a little oh more God, cutting than I. That's so horrific because for the father to say to the pilgrim, to say to Dante, have you seen my son? The culpability is just wild. I mean, you could just feel behind it. That, I mean, there's this sense that here's this guy and he's talking about the, his son that this man standing in front of him essentially had put to death in exile. It is so wildly revealing and metapoetic and ironic and just weird ass at its core. It's, it's fabulous. In this moment, this specific bit, is this social commentary or is this like cathartic self-revelation? Like, can this be ascribed to a motive why he would do that? Can you say that the answer is yes? Yes. I mean, yes. Does it? <laughs> I mean, it I can. Be, does it have to be either or? Mm, okay, um, that, that's fair. I mean, it's such a complex poem, and to have this mewling, dog-like figure crawl up in the tomb next to this stately Farinata. Uh, it's so wild and it's so and there's Virgil standing back over there in the background somewhere. They've like left him on the road and he's back <laughs> over there. And, <laughs> and they're just carrying on having a grand conversation. And then Virgil standing left there. in the, the little kitty playground area outside <laughs> of the Hesse Arc zone. <laughs> they did, because it doesn't have anything to do with Virgil. <laughs> and it's just such a wild bit, and it's so interesting that it's so cathartic i think and so filled with dante's own guilt that he says all that in heresy which is really odd like it's against doctrine or something amongst the tombs of the epicureans in the musical version of the inferno this would be where this would be where the the stage lights kind of focus on just the pair of them mm. with the like flickering background of of tombs and such the background but this is this is the stage goes dark for my sad duet song and very very focal point <laughs> I love that. And I, I, since we're going to be all meta poetic and self-confessional and all that i want to tell you that i am a gay man who hates musicals so that makes it particularly hellish for me that you would make this a musical moment sorry wow. this, this, this interview this interview is over <laughs> sorry i'm sorry i really i really oh I no no I'm okay with this because I live with him and I hate musicals as well. And he can't stand me either. So 
This is great. <laughs> My husband loves musicals, and I have been dragged to see every musical in the history that I could possibly imagine. And he and I almost broke up in the Isle of Gypsy once with Patty <laughs> with Patty Lapone because I wanted him to hate it as much as I hated it. And he wouldn't. He loved it. He loved Patty Lapone. He loved the whole thing. And I was like. I want you to hate this as much as I hate it. And he wouldn't do it. And I swear to God, our relationship almost came to an end in the Isle of Gypsy. That's pretty gay. But <laughs> I think that sentence may qualify <laughs> and then mm-hmm. erase, you know, like that. How, how many of us have married our contrapassos? Because my husband is an engineer and uh-huh. I have to explain my jokes to him. <laughs> <laughs> and he also has to explain his jokes to you. Yeah, well, that's yeah. true. They're, they're just based on, like, pipe measurements. It's strange. <laughs> <laughs> and yet we seem to be back to this one more time and <laughs> pipe measurements. So <laughs> it's, it's truly true. Um, anyway, I like the idea, though, of a musical because it would be, and it is about as cathartic as a musical sequence could be, right? I mean, good God, you're facing the father of the kid, of the kid you had killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're... It's about as crazy as it can get. And like from a, a, a writing arc perspective, it's a really good place to have the introspective scene too, because you just had an action sequence. You need to slow down. You take a moment to reestablish your humanity uh, after a really crazy sequence with like not Jesus Christ himself swooping in and no, no Medusa showing up and the fates talking a big talk, but not actually anyway. It's a great scene. It is. It's super anticlimactic, right? I mean, here comes yeah. this big messenger and and with his little wand and goes ding and the doors open and they're through. It's it has this it, it's like wow, I wanted more. I yeah, want like that. it's crazy. It's it's this very sort of bored and jaded angel that just kind of like shuffles in, like unlocks the door and you know, just kind of like so- Pulls the key off of a massive key ring on his belt, exactly. shuffles through him to find the right one. So, well, uh, it's, it's, it's recapitulating the, the harrowing, too. So it's kind of echoing stanza one as well. Since this is this is probably a stand-in for Jesus, this does raise a question that I think we brought up in another episode. He had to run over the bodies of water to get there. What happens when Christ gets wet? We never answered that. I, I I listened to that podcast and I loved it. I love that question because I have this, I have a similar question. I mean, I know what happens to the host when it gets wet in church. Like it, it, gets, it gets soggy. Well, or it sticks on the roof of your mouth. Maybe that's what Jesus does. He that, sticks on the roof of your mouth. I think so. I think like you're just, you just have to like be, you know, get a scraper, whatever part he's st- like, you're just kind of trying to scrape off. You know, hopefully okay. you get them in one piece, because otherwise, wait. then you got to get some goo gone. I, I did some research on on this, and um, I've seen a lot of pictures of Jesus getting wet, like in the baptism scene. Mm. Were they like, like wet t-shirt content? Yes, yeah, some like, of them were. Some <laughs> flash of them were. dance. Uh, he attracts pigeons. Like when he gets wet, he must emit some sort of fragrance. It's very attractive to pigeons because they come down from heaven and land on his head in every single picture. Are these right. pigeons white? It's a, it's, they are. It's a dove. It's That's not right. a pigeon. It's oh. a dove. <laughs> Darn we you don't have like, doves here. I, I like the pigeons better, but uh... <laughs> it's a grackle. <laughs> it's a grackle. Austin Jesus finds a gra- yes. I like that better. So I'll go with Grackle, but yeah, I like that. But you know, that's not the resurrected Jesus. That's the Jesus 
walking around and he's, I don't want to know what the resurrected happens to him if he gets wet, mm. since he can like, walk through walls. Like, so, hmm. what well, happens to him? I, 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 I he probably falls into the water because now his surface tension is broken. Hmm. Oh, oh. Well, oh. Yeah. well, maybe it's like if you put olive oil in the water, the beans don't foam. Maybe you could put olive oil on the water to cr- increase the surface, no, to break the surface tension, right? Oh, well, then he'd fall through more. Yeah, then he'd go faster. Mm. Al- yeah, Alchemic- no, that's not so good. Alchemically speaking, after the resurrection, he becomes an airy spirit. So I don't think he actually can get wet or exist at all. He just floats. Hmm. Hmm. What if oh, you pre-moisten him? <laughs> I don't know, but remember, he can't, but he wants Thomas to put his fingers in the holes in his hands. That's just creepy. No, <laughs> oh, Sounds like Grinder. He just wants Thomas to put his fingers in the holes of his hands. So, I mean, he wants something there. Um, there's. <laughs> I had a, I had a question as well, and we all have questions. Is the Sorry. entire Inferno just an allegory for writer's block? Ha! Um, ha! I think it's uh, it is a huge allegory for writer's block that's a great way to put it oh my god that's i'm gonna steal that and use it on a Sunday. um <laughs> we, we, we we steal from you go for it <laughs> um, wow that is really good i don't think it's not it isn't so much blocked it i maybe it's coming to the realization of what you're writing listen i don't think dante knows what he's writing he has no mm. clue yeah um yeah. When he starts out, because right, hell's in rings, supposedly, right? And there's these rings that go down. Okay, sure. did limbo look like a ring? No, it did no. not. It, looked it like was a, a castle and a green. Right. What does that yeah. castle extend all the way around? No way. Well, this so, does. This does. So he comes to understand, and like when he meets Francesca and Paolo up there on the wind, you don't get the sense that they're blowing around and around and around the circle. They're blowing around in wind. And yeah. maybe they're going around and around the circle, but it doesn't say that. The scale I, is a little bit like three apples high. It does get kind of wobbly. Yeah, I think he's, he's coming to this realization of what he's writing. And he's coming to the realization, for example, he's coming to the realization about the circularity of hell. And that, he, yes, of course, it's all rings. And he's called it circles from the very beginning. But he didn't really explore that. So I think it, it is writer's block, but it's also he's desperately trying to figure out what it is that he's writing and how he's going to write it. Is he going to write it with Virgil? Is he going to write it in Virgil's voice? Is he going to write it in his own voice? He's trying to work this out. And I think that scene in front of this is really important to working that out as a writer. But yeah, you have to do it, right? He's, try- he's trying to make the world's greatest masterpiece, right? That was his plan. <laughs> like Jack Black. This is the greatest song. <laughs> oh, no, no, it, it, it wasn't the greatest song. It was it was only a tribute. Yes, he is trying to make the world's greatest masterpiece, but he doesn't yet know it. Mm. He's he's not conscious of that yet. I mean, later on, when you get down in hell, you're going to write. I'm ahead of you, but you're going to see Jason of the Argonaut fame. And Jason's going to be circling with the seducers and they're going to, you're going to hear all this talk about, Oh, Medea, Medea finally gets her vendetta on Jason. It's mm. very, he has been whipped by horn demons. Pictures. That's just going around. Yeah, exactly. But over the course of that, this is beyond this and this is beyond Inferno over the course of Inferno, the character of Jason gets renovated and at the very end of the entire thing, way up at the top of paradise, 
Dante calls himself the new Jason. And that this th- that this thing, this poem, is the golden fleece. Hmm. Whoa. He, has, he has voyaged to find it. Yeah, and pro- if you just think about how nasty Jason is, like poor Medea and poor Hypsilipi and all these women he's left strewn behind him. And yet Dante by the end is going to call himself the new Jason. And <laughs> I think he comes to think he's writing the greatest thing that's ever been written. That's for sure. Definitely tells us that. Well, it's so it's so interesting to hear because I feel like there there's it's very difficult to parse out Dante who is actually writing this outside and then Dante inside. It's it's because Dante inside is also writing. You know, he's kind of creating this journey as he's going through it and stopping and starting and like okay, rewind. Okay, now it's going to go this way, and it's just kind of that like author character like who's really in charge here moment i think that that's i think that that's part of the dynamic and the tension inside of there and i think it's probably part of what makes inferno so compelling because by the time he gets to purgatorio which is again beyond this by the time he gets to the second part of the poem he's kind of solved a lot of that and so purgatorio ends up sounding flatter and feeling flatter Hmm. um, than inferno there's a reason why Inferno gets taught and Paradiso doesn't get taught. It's yeah. not just that it's more interesting. It's just that what's actually happening in it may be more interesting, like from what you're saying. Wow. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, as you said earlier, all the fun people are in hell. <laughs> so, you know, who cares? Who's, after we've gone through the, the A-list, who cares who's left? Ah, uh, you don't you don't want to hang out and wait for St. Thomas Aquinas to come back. <laughs> no, 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 oh, no. For no, the no. love of God. I had that enough guy. challenge. Limbo was hard enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Get up to paradise and have long conversations with St. Thomas Aquinas. It's just fabulous. Oh, There's no roving bands of sodomites. I mean. No, there aren't. There aren't. There's this moment where... <laughs> So once upon a time, when I lived in Austin, there was a gay bar downtown. It's probably still there called Oil Can Harry. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they used to have this drag night. This is years ago. This back when I taught at St. Edwards. They had this drag night and the drag queens all would be on these ladders pitched against one wall. And they'd have their singing contest all kind of by hanging on to these ladders. Very strange. There is a moment in Paradiso where all the saints go up and down the ladder. And all I can picture is drag queens going up <laughs> and down this ladder to God. <laughs> because it happened. I saw it in gay bars. So it must have happened in heaven, too. So um, this is this, the musical that we're going to we're going to create. We're going to write and produce in film. Then we'll have that scene. You know, oh, I good. Think that's a, ne- a necessity just to kind of liven that part of the comedy up. I've, I've been listening to your podcast and your notes and cribbing heavily from them. And your topics are very variable in length. It seems like we hit like 20 lines, mostly sometimes 10 at some points. What is the smallest textual unit you think you can frame an episode around? Three lines, one of the one of the closing zingers. 
I'm I'm recording episodes up in the 18th and 19th canto right now, and there is a really, really, really vulgar moment in the 18th canto, and this demon makes this really, really crass comment. And I thought about doing a whole podcast episode just on those three lines where this demon makes this terribly crass comment, but I decided not to. I think the shortest I've ever done is nine lines, but. I, I have to tell you that because Walking with Dante, my podcast, is just a passion project for me, I just take it however I want to <laughs> take it. And if I, I want to do nine lines, it's my business. And if I want to do 15 <laughs> lines, it's my business. Uh, yeah. I know that sounds ridiculous. And it's mm-hmm. like every podcaster in the world would tell me I'm an idiot for not being more consistent. But I, I'm sorry. I'm just doing this. Wait, um, hang I, on. Wildly- We're podcasters. And well, I, I think know, but- you're okay. <laughs> You're you're wildly popular in Sweden. I am. I am wildly popular in the <laughs> Netherlands and Sweden. Oddly, <laughs> so go figure. You know those Europeans. It's true. So, They're so loose. They, <laughs> they are so loose. So totally loose. So my question has to do with your career as a cookbook author. Oh. So if you had to liken Dante's version of hell to an instant pot. What would that be like? Or or not. Um, or a crock pot or even like a pressure cook if you really want to get old school. Wait, what do you have against air fryers? Okay, air fryers. So you have many options of, of a we're vessel. Current, we're currently writing an air fryer book. So there you go. Um, Yay. What small kitchen appliance <laughs> is most like a journey through the cosmos? <laughs> what small? Wow. That I don't know. Uh, what small kitchen appliance is most like hell? I, you know, here's the thing. And this is how it gets. Okay. So I, this is a personal thing, but this is how it gets hellish is we, my husband and I write gigantic cookbooks of like, 500 recipes and i want to tell you your 500th recipe uh, from a pressure cooker will make you barf because it, you're just <laughs> so sick of pressure cooker food you're like oh my god can i have one thing crunchy does everything have to be soft and mushy right now or <sighs> can i have one thing that's crunchy please or when you write an air fryer book like we do that has 300 recipes in it you're just like oh my god i cannot eat any more fried food there's no way i could eat it so I've it's never very had that problem <laughs> Believe me, you can. Um, I, I can attest to the fact that you can actually get sick of fried candy bars. So <laughs> it becomes, it, I can't, it's not really like any job, right? It, it, it reaches this point where it's just too much and you just can't process it anymore. I have a friend who's a writer and she claims that writing, a, she's a good novelist, and she claims that writing a novel is first seeing a star and then realizing it's not a star, it's a mountain I have to climb. And then realizing it's a damn rock I have to kick in front of my foot. And <laughs> that's the whole process is from star <laughs> to mountain to rock. And that's kind of what writing a big cookbook about the Instapod is like, which is kind of hellish. <laughs> so, so there's a circle of mushiness, a circle of crispiness. Oh, and, <laughs> oh, and a, a circle of brown. It's got to be a circle of <laughs> the brown browning and level. All things, and all things brown. Oh, and there's got to be like some horrific circle of boneless, skinless chicken breasts where they just yes. march for forever in yes. front of you, and you, you can't. You have a, you have screaming souls swimming under a sea of boneless, skinless chicken breasts, <laughs> crying out their lament. It's sad. They're burbling. It's so sad. It's like a seven layer dip, you know, of, of oh. infernal 
foods. My mom would put frozen peas in the seven layer dip and I never understood it. And that's not right at all. My mother would fry bananas with liver. Oh, Oh my God. Can you very upscale? Can you forward (laughs) me her recipe? I'm going to make this tomorrow night. Oh, God. You're all invited. (laughs) Thanks. I got it. Thanks in advance. (laughs) Tune in next episode when my favorite recipe is going to be avocados fried with liver. Mm-hmm. Before we before we let you go on your epic journey across the cosmos, are there any other projects you're working on? Well, I'm happy to say that I just had a memoir come out, and it is called Bookmarked, How the Great Works of Western Literature Fucked Up My Life. <laughs> I love that. And, and, and it is about my, at times, psychotic relationship, literally psychotic relationship with the great works of literature, and including... The night I spent with the poet William Blake. <gasps> and let me tell you that, like all poets, he's not worth it. But still, <laughs> nonetheless, <laughs> still, nonetheless, uh, it's it's basically my journey to find myself somewhere in some book somewhere, and how it almost broke my life to pieces. I became a professor at St. Ed's of Lit, who didn't own a single book. A wow. lit professor who didn't own any books. How? Wow! How is that even possible? Because I had decided that I was going to purge all literature from my life while holding a tenured track position in lit. New life goals. Crazy. <laughs> now, one day, I dream of this. <laughs> it was kind of crazy. And I realized early on that I had been my, part of my hire was I had been hired so the administration could call someone on the weekends and fish the Holy Cross monks out of the gay bars. <laughs> and I would get a call at about midnight saying, brother Andrew is in such and such a bar. Can you go get him? And sure. You haven't lived until you have fished a monk in a cowl out of a gay bar. You have not lived until that moment. That's the best. That's the best story. Uncle Mark. <laughs> I thought I had new life goals. My life goals have just, I want so much more now out of my life. This is fantastic. I'm so excited to read it. It's the perfect intersection of religion and gay. I'm in. (laughs) Essentially, yes, that's correct. That's essentially right. Well, thank thank you very much for inviting me on. Oh, thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for joining. It's been so much fun. fun. Thank you, too. And um, and good luck with your ongoing journey. Thank you. And good luck with your ongoing journey. I look forward to hearing much more. Um, Oh, thank you. I look forward to listening to much more. So. Best of luck. Oh, thank you. Take care, Mark. Thanks again. Thank you. It's great talking with you. Okay, so this is our our second session with the Inferno. And so I want to do our well-being questionnaire just so I can keep tabs on where we're at and any emotional issues that we may be struggling with as we undertake this journey. So do you guys remember the rating scale from last time? I do. Zero is never... Zero is never. Uh-huh. Zero is never, and five is quite, quite alwaysness. Yes, and three is more than half of the time. So, okay. if you just know those guys, you can kind of fit in, interpolate, mm-hmm. extrapolate mathematically. Exactly. So, the first question: Since I've been reading the Inferno, my sleep has been undisturbed and restful. I, I, I think I can go to a three this week. I'm not okay. sure why. Hmm, okay. But it's been it's been good. Good. I'm going to say zero. 
there was one hell of a thunderstorm this morning. It woke me up an hour and a half before my alarm went off, mm-hmm. and I still had to go to work. But in the Inferno, when there's a massive crash of noise, people swoon. Yeah, yeah, so... I anti-swooned. Oh. Wow. You yeah. stood okay. up with like that twang noise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, boy, 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 Wow, that must have been something. I would say I'm zero as well. I, I'm, I, hmm. Any sleep that I have is, is kind of a swoon, but it's not at all refreshing, you know, because I tend to wake up in the same, you know, kind of hellscape. So, mm. yeah. Okay, so number two, since I've been reading The Inferno, I've been able to participate fully and productively in my work and day-to-day activities. Uh, I'm feeling feeling a little bit too here. I spent okay. a lot of the day lost in both spreadsheets and Kanto 14. Mm-hmm. Are they starting to kind of overlap for you? It's very up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain, angry wolves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what about you, Jamin? I'm going to say zero and a half. Okay. Because I was at work dealing with people. Mm-hmm. And I had two copies of the Inferno, two different translations on my desk, and I ignored them both, and I crocheted a little hat. Aww, that's it's adorable. Cute. Can I have a picture of it for the podcast? I'll take a picture of it, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> when we have show notes again. I'd say I'm a two, because I feel like this has started to... The, the, the space in my life for the Inferno has um, started to expand. So I feel like there's, yeah, like there's some growth like and and like a tumor let's say of oh. Oh, yeah dear. so yeah it's kind of it's it's a thing so it's, is this one of those too. okay sorry no go ahead oh is this one of the one of those things where like a ferret pops out of your shirt and you say it's not a tumor <laughs> i i god i hope so <laughs> um okay three since i've been reading the inferno i've been able to maintain satisfying relationships with others um I'm I'm going to put this at a maybe a 2. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I've been talking to people more, but I'm talking to them about the inferno. So it's better. Mhm. I feel we're we're going upwards and downwards at the same time. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Jamin? Uh, I'm going to say 0 and a third. Okay. Because okay. last week I didn't have any friends. Mm-hmm. And this week I left both copies of my inferno different translations at the edge of my desk facing outward on my cube so that as people would walk by, they would look down and notice and say, oh, you're reading The Inferno and strike up a conversation with me. Oh. And they didn't. Oh. I'm sorry about that. I think you're just, I think you need to really rethink the kind of people you're trying to attract into your life. That's what I would say. Living, breathing. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. That's exactly right. I would say uh, some of the time, because I have been staying up late in order to read the Inferno. And so my relationship with my cats has really improved. Oh, nice. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's a plus. So fourth, since I've been reading the Inferno, I have found joy in social and recreational activities. I'm I'm really treasuring the moments that I have that are not the Inferno. So let's, let's call it a four. Okay. Okay. That sounds fair. Let's see. Last week I went kayaking instead of reading the Inferno. Mm -hmm. This week, I spent a lot of time getting scammed on Facebook Marketplace. Oh, dear. Which, any interaction is positive interaction. I enjoyed it greatly when they were like, hey, listen, I can't take Facebook. Why don't you just Venmo it to me on the side and I'll ship it to you? Oh, dear. I loved it. I loved it. It was great. 
Mm-hmm. It was rewarding. So, uh, what is that? Uh, 0.9? Repeating? Yeah, 0.999 overscore. 0.999. Okay. And, and add into infinity. Okay. Uh, let's see. Joy in social and recreational activities. I would say I have had none since reading The Inferno. And I don't know to what to attribute that. Apart from the, maybe the swooning... All the drinking that I've been doing, mm-hmm. I think that's really kind of turned some people off. Apart from the cats, they really seem to be digging that. So <laughs> cats I'd love say, love a good drunkard. They do, they do. So I'd say a one. Let's say so. Okay, final question. So since I've been reading the Inferno, mine intellect wanders so from that which it is want or sooth. Mine mind where it is elsewhere looking. That sounds neat. What's that from? I don't uh, know. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be a that five? That would be a four. A five, yes, let's say five. <laughs> ADHD Already? plus Kanto 16 is, is not your friend. <laughs> or is it? Hmm. Jamin? <laughs> uh, 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 have I given a five this session? No. Five. Yay. Arbitrary five. You have not even given anything above a a 0. 0.9. <laughs> yeah. So, it's infinitely close to one. Let, let's. I'm going to give this a five just to screw the bell curve up for the rest of the class. Okay. 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 That's that's fair. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I would say definitely five. So I think we're all in agreement on that one. Yes, definitely. I don't really understand it, but I do agree with it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, I'll put this into the. I'll put this into the spreadsheet. Thank you. Thank you. Yay! Thank you for running a spreadsheet. <laughs> she said with finger quotes. <laughs> I feel like our journey into the heart of hell started reasonably comprehensibly with Kanto's mm-hmm. one with wolves and hills and leopards and two and three and four oh and gluttony and lust and other sins I could relate to. Um, and that we in Kanto 8, we start going to a strange place that is difficult to pull out from. Yeah, well, yeah. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Like the punch card of, you know... You commit a certain number of sins and get the next one free. I feel like we're not able to use that card anymore. Right. And I find that really vexing. Yes. Yeah. And like narrator narrator relationship with other narrators starts to become really like a major plot point, And therefore I am so lost. Mm-hmm. Because do you, do you care at this point about either Dante or Virgil? Um, I care about Virgil more over the course of the next few because he becomes more human Okay. I think I care about Dante less because he is really pushing his blog really hard. <laughs> I don't I don't know if care is the word I want to use. Maybe it's like vested interest or yeah. like macabre curiosity just to what happens next, like where is this train wreck going? That that uh, that's not care, but I I kinda wanna know what's next. So I remember when I was in high school my writing was mediocre because I didn't know what I was doing. And in college, I think my writing was actually bad because I because didn't you knew know what you were doing yeah. and I knew it. And now my writing is good because I'm in the midpoint of my life. <laughs> and, and I'm hoping that this is kind of where we are with Kanto's eight through 16, that this is Dante coming into his own as a writer. And then he'll get beyond that and actually become a character again. Well, so he wrote three big books. This one, the next one, and the third in the trilogy. 
Mm-hmm. Oh. And some other things. He wrote some other things. Well, that was my question. Cook- like, cookbooks, mostly, I think. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> 500 recipe cookbooks. For the Instant it was, Pot. It was some uh, very specific erotica. Wait, really? Some very niche erotica. <laughs> See, I'm hoping you're telling the truth right now. Well, I think we could really invent, we could make that erotica happen very easily. That red snood, it doesn't work for me. Pass. <laughs> the red snood diaries. <laughs> oh my god, yes. Okay, so is this one of his early works, or was he an established writer by the time he was like, I'm going to write the biggest, bestest, masterpiece, just Everest? Because I don't know the answer. I'm going to look that up. Well, it's interesting, Jacob, when you were talking about kind of your own timeline as a writer because he's and again like age is ages are different in different time periods like 35 doesn't in his time doesn't mean the same thing as in our time but there that is kind of a tipping point i think often of adulthood the kind of third at his at his time that would be more akin to middle age whereas right now that's sort of arrested adolescence (laughs) so it's kind of like that's that scale of experience that makes somebody a good writer or able to take on writing it, the, the, the work of your lifetime. Oh, he was, a, yeah, he was a graybeard, mm-hmm. a self-proclaimed graybeard. He wrote, he was planning to write a series of 15 books, 14 of which would be commentaries on different canzoni. And I'm pretty sure that's that dessert with the cream inside of it, the little cream horn. Oh, those it are is. delicious. Yeah, it is. So. And that also was, was erotica. It was, he was planning on that being erotica. So when you squeeze it, the... Oh, <laughs> never mind. That is very niche. Very niche. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the Inferno came after that as just kind of a... He had to unwind, I guess. <laughs> Where were we? Well, uh, I think we should start with Canto 8, This is Gate. <laughs> Okay. Oh, that rhymes. Mm. So I have a question about the harrowing of hell. So why? Okay. So to Dante, this is, this is real. Like this is canon for him. And I know when we were, did our episode on the harrowing of hell, we were talking about how that kind of, that idea sort of lost favor, but he's, is he right in the middle of when that was an accepted Part of this story and is that why that is such a feature of this the crusading christ is kind of the image this martial christ and it's very part of the feudal world okay and, and so like ergo the crusades like yeah sort of, that okay. period the, the church militant needed the harrowing to show that christ could you know look awesome when he takes off his shirt and i think especially if, when he's wet yes if that is indeed possible we haven't established that mm-hmm. so i think that it starts to kind of wear down when we get more stable monarchies, when the Reformation starts saying this is unnecessary dross. So it kind of fizzles, I think, in the 1500s in any nation that's touched by Protestantism. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. We couldn't prove that in court, but it is a very medieval sort of mindset. Yeah, because I find that kind of remarkable. Like it's marks the landscape so much. Yeah. I like that. And it's very big in Canto 8 as well, I think. Like, that's mm-hmm. a major moment is this kind of let's let's play harrowing the home game. <laughs> I was just kind of struck by how much this is like the, is it the Iris Sauron? The- yeah, it's a very, it's, it's, it's a fortress and mm-hmm. they're preparing for war. Like the image of the, like the signal lamp signaling to each other, that's saying, you know, the enemies are coming. That is a, 
city under siege, a city preparing to be invaded mm-hmm. by Dante and Virgil and maybe this like little god thing that shows up to say hi. <laughs> the civil servant. One if by sticks, two if by Asheron. <laughs> so, Canto 8, uh, Styx's Marsh, this is Gate. Uh, quick summary, Hell sends a welcome boat to cross the Styx. Dante has an encounter with a soul in the marsh, calling himself the one who weeps, who tries to drag him under or grab the boat or something. I really didn't pay much attention to it. And Virgil shoves him away. It's kind of a, a violent, arrogant scene. It's kind of weird. And the people under the water are also arrogant, and now they're wallowing in the mud, so there's a tie there. Virgil leaves Dante at the gates of Dis to go deal with some sort of business off-screen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then he comes back. He comes back kind of foiled, so this is really a moment where... Virgil is like not really stellar, I guess. Not not quite. He's, he's fallible now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Angry Dante is angry, and he's angry in the land of angry, which is kind of interesting. So like kind of reflecting the environment he's in, and that it's a complex, exciting chapter. It's a complex, exciting chapter. Canto nine is more so. Okay, so in the Sandoberg translation, there's specifically a line where he comes back, and angry Dante is angry, and Virgil says. Just calm down a minute. Don't you understand? No one can stop you from continuing this journey. It's planned already and it's out of your control. Just wait here and relax. And it's that specific translation in which this is a guided tour. Point A to point B, we know what the future stops are going to be. They're not going to stop us here because we already had, like, it's a, it's destiny, man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet, this is the part where Virgil starts to lose the reins. Right, because it's out of Virgil's control, too. Yeah. But he's kind of convinced Dante that he has control. So I want to talk briefly about the Sando Burke translation of the Inferno, which is one that you might not have read, but if you've seen or seen clips of or seen the trailer for the 2007 paper cutout version of the Inferno, this is the translation, the kind of urban translation that that is based on Mm, with illustrations that become paper cutouts very soon. That's very cool. Yes. We referenced this earlier when... Dante and Virgil are standing there in front of, like, a gyro shop, and there's the Minotaur on top. Did yeah. Did you post that in prior show notes? We did, and we'll post it again. Listener, go back and listen to every single episode we've ever made. Yes, <laughs> that seems fair. I mean, read the show notes. <laughs> so I have a question about um, that moment of not being able to get into the gates and the sort of anxiety that is building. So is that also a moment of kind of doubt and sort of loss of faith potentially, because there's a sense of the quote, then my translation is the mind hungers after God and waits. And just this uncertainty of will there be a divine um, intercession in time that seems out of character with the kind of or maybe it's very much in, in, in character where you have to have this moment of doubt before you can have true faith. I, I think that that's a very fair assessment. And the moment of doubt is, uh, this is it's more so in Canto 9, where Virgil yeah. has mm-hmm. a little freak out when someone bring, is saying, oh my gosh, it's the Medusa, she's going to turn us all to stone. Yeah, and a little like, cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. If you don't believe in the Medusa, she can't turn you to stone. And all of this is a fiction. <laughs> It's 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 a very metatextual fiction. So I think that someone very wise, possibly Jamin, suggested that this is an allegory for like the journey of faith. And definitely not me. Okay, suggested this is a 
small kitchen appliance, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and only like the Medusa is something that can stop you in your tracks, not necessarily kill you, but stop you in your journey. And all these things are things that could make you turn around, not necessarily die, but this could stop you if you lose faith in the thing. If you lose faith in Beatrice or whatever you're holding on to then the journey ends. And that's mm-hmm. the real threat here. Not death, because he's a fictional character writing himself into a story, but the the end of the journey. Can I, um, since it's it's kind of where we office, I'd like to read the part where he actually sees the city of Dis for the first time? Yes. Uh-huh. We'll see if, if, he, if he sees our, our windows. Hi! <laughs> and the good master said, Even now, my son, the city draweth near whose name is Dis, with the grave citizens, with the great throng. And I, its mosques already, master, clearly within there the valley I discern, vermilion as if issuing from the fire they were. And he to me, the fire eternal that kindles them within makes them look red, as thou beholdest in this nether hell. Then we arrived within the moats profound, that circumvallate that disconsolate city, the walls appeared to me to be of iron. Mm, mm-hmm. And there's a Starbucks. Yeah, yeah, it's where the old Starbucks used to be, right? It's actually in the bathroom of the old Starbucks. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yes. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't help but think about The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yes, me too. I was going to bring that up when we were talking with Mark, is this is like, nobody is the great Oz, not nobody, not know how. <laughs> but then he said he hated musicals, and I was I was disturbed that he might say he doesn't like The Wizard of Oz, and then I just, I'd have to have a moment. Yeah, I think that would have been that that would have been the end of the journey right there. It would have, yes. I would have turned mm-hmm. around, gone down the mountain, faced the hungry wolves. <laughs> I want to read this just to just to compare. And this is not quite the same verbatim passage. I think I can see weird lights from what looks like mosques up ahead. They're burning bright red like a bunch of cigarettes glowing in the night. There are fires and dips that burn forever, he explained. That's what makes it look so red. You'll be seeing them all through lower hell. I like that. We finally came to the deep moats that snaked and twisted around the whole edge of that evil city. The high walls were solid and gray and seemed to be made of titanium or something. We cruised the walls for a while until we came to a place where the boatman started to freak out. Get out, he yelled. That's it. End of the line. (laughs) I like that translation. And I'm like, okay, yeah, this is dis. Back to work. It ain't Chinatown. Wait, this is Chinatown. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jamin... Mr. Burke says he's glad you're enjoying his translation and hopes that it encourages you to move to something more academic. <laughs> oh, why? I think this is, that's this is a, perfect. That's a Burke zing. <laughs> Canto 9? Yeah, let's go to Canto 9. Okay. I have things to say about Canto 9. Canto 9, some of this, some of that. <laughs> See, that's the yeah. the fossey no, number, some no. of this, put, some of that. Put a dollar in the fine jar. There's some pointless commotion. Dante frets that an angel is not coming fast enough, and he's nervous. The Furies appear. They talk about Medusa. Finally, an angel walks across the water and opens the gate with his wand. He tells the inhabitants of hell to behave, but doesn't really directly acknowledge Virgil or Dante. Mm-hmm. Inside this, there are crypts and sepulchers in a flaming plain. There's sepul- These are the graves of the hierarchs, leaders of heresies, and their followers. It's an ironic sort of punishment. They'll live forever and in pain. I have a question about the fury. So, <laughs> again, problem with my translation. There's a moment where uh, the sta- there's a statement about knew by their gestures that they were women. Uh huh. 
Were they like, what does that mean? Like, what gestures signify that they're women? Are they flipping the dudes off? Is that how they know they're women? New by their gestures. Mm-hmm. I just found that kind of a very 1950s thing to put in a translation of the Inferno, I think. Fury sprang to view, bloodstained and wild. Their limbs and gestures hinted they were women. Who had the limbs of women and their men, mean, with the greenest hydras were begirt. This one is the limbs of women. Yeah, I don't. There's nothing about gestures in the in the wiggle wiggle on bottom version. So I'm wondering, yeah, like this must be a. There's some other problematic things uh, this time around in, in my 1950s translation. But yeah, yeah, just curious, just curious. I was also curious about um, the mention of. I know I always say it wrong. Cerebus. Yes, Kerberos. Kerberos. Kerberos's yeah. his wounds because that felt like a moment of. Uh, incontinuity. We didn't see his wounds. That wasn't a part of our encounter. Uh, Hercules bound Kerberos and dragged him mm-hmm. back to hell with chains or something along those general lines. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that might have just been a toss a toss off reference to a chapter that's maybe not quite in this continuity. I don't gotcha. Know. We should talk about that at some point. I think there'll be a, a Kerberos episode down the road. Okay. Cool. 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 The big big marker in this chapter is like loss of faith in Virgil. He becomes like less the shiny sparkly guy and more kind of baggage. Maybe he's like an uncle, but you still love him. I feel like he's that friend that you start hanging out with because you think they're really, really cool. And then you realize, oh, no, there's some pathology here. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Along those lines. I also kind of think maybe he's kind of showing that if Dante can still love Virgil after Virgil shows himself to be fallible, God can still love us after we've sinned. Because the Ver- Inferno is really like redemption long game. Except for not everybody, because there's also this sense of Virgil, well, definitely like Virgil is praising Dante the more he his heart hardens to the sinners. Like that is like he's achieving this sense of perfection where the righteous righteous indignation at sin yeah. is where your soul should be. I just don't feel great around Virgil in this chapter. And, and the, the forest of suicides really... He, he oh, yeah. He's a, such a dick. Yeah. You, you kind of set it with the sin in which Dorothy Sayers, in her notes on hell, is Canto 9 is the transition from sins we can understand with philosophy versus sins we can't, right? Mm -hmm. This is things, I can't justify this with my human perspective. Again, and that can be tied to like the breakdown of Virgil, in which I can't explain this to you, therefore we've fallen. Hmm. So, yeah, the first first three circles of hell were easy. We understood those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this one is more subjective. Yeah, very like, Basic physical stuff, one through three. Now we're in a different land entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank, thank you, Dorothy. <laughs> I just want to move on to Canto 10. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Excellent. Canto 10, more hesiarchs. Heresiarchs. Oh, so is that another word for heretic? Uh, well, in that patriarch is the leader of a group of people named Pat. Mm-hmm. Heresiarch is the leader of a heresy. <gasps> oh! So yeah. So they're even worse than a normal heretic because they are papa heretic. Yes. Remember that of all the sins that you can have, fraud is the biggest one of all. 
Gotcha. So they are guilty of fraud in leading heresy. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Although Dante really only like uses this as a touchstone for a bunch of very personal introspective stuff. And mostly just talks about the Epicureans who kind of were like, yeah, now is the only thing we have. There is no soul, so let's go and have brunch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to say, the soul dies with the body. Yes. Therefore, get wrecked. I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> I don't understand. The Epicurean philosophy was not necessarily like go and have a truly massive dinner at Sushi Janai that you regret for three days. It's that a lot of good in your life can come from avoiding pain, anything that causes pain, which includes being cruel to others. I, I'm okay with that. I, I think I am too. It's, it's, it's very close to the too. golden rule. Yeah, <laughs> It's simple, but if you follow that, you're doing pretty well, although you probably wouldn't be a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying what we do is cruel to others? <laughs> Just to ourselves. Oh, wow. No, that's true. Yeah. So we have another opportunity to do a shot in here. Oh, yes. How? Because Virgil is annoyed by at, at the fact that Dante's hiding his desire to speak to a Tuscan, to another Tuscan. Right. Yes. Because mm-hmm. like everybody in here is part of Dante's long-term family drama. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And this is one of those moments where it's like, how does Dante, Dante suddenly is able to read I mean, Virgil is suddenly able to read Dante's mind. Where did that come from? Tuscany. One of the interesting little bits here is that we learned that the damned can see the long ago and the, the far future. So they kind of prophesy the future, which is what a lot of people say, hey, Dante, you're great. Um, but they can't see what's like right ahead. Right. They can't see what's in this very moment. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, because he wants us to know that eventually he'll be great. So he's letting us know that others know he's great. Right. Yeah, that is convenient. Ah, mm-hmm. sneaky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We see, like those who have imperfect sight, these things, he said, that distant are from us. So much still shines on us, the sovereign ruler. What? So much still shines on us, the sovereign ruler, when they draw near... Oh, this is weird. When they draw near, or are, is holy vain... Our intellect, and if none brings it to us, not anything know we of your human state. Hence thou canst understand, I, I can't, that holy dead will be our knowledge from the moment when the portal of the future shall be closed. That did not parse well. No, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to try it again. <laughs> I blame Wigglesworth. Uh, it's all Wigglesworth's fault. Henry Wigglesworth Longbottom. I know. The Henry. third. <laughs> Canto 11? Let's do Canto 11. Geography lesson. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, From an inferonology perspective, this is a good one. It's very useful. It It really is. is. It was a good moment. Overlooking the cliff beyond which is more... Overlooking the cliff beyond which is more hell, they take a break to get used to the horrible smell. I'm rhyming again. Virgil explains the circles of hell, including the three that are coming up. Fraud and deceit are the lowest. Violence is circle seven, including violence against themselves. Violence against other humans... Violence against God, which includes the gays. Uh, circle eight is hypocrites, flatterers, sorcerers, cheats, and level nine, betrayers. We learned that usury is a crime against nature because it's charging for something God did not create. I think that's right. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought that was cruelty to bears. That's ursery. And actually, that's divination with bears. Mm. So there's the like creating money from money, right? 
Yeah. Like, so you're not actually creating. Right. Yeah. That's kind of the foundation. Mm-hmm. It's a violation of like the curse that mm-hmm. man must make his work through. Yes. Toil and bloodshed. The structure of hell is based on, and this is kind of interesting, Aristotle, not the Bible. Yeah. So I think that's kind of noteworthy because every other journey through hell in the entire Middle Ages is based on biblical assumptions. This is based on Greek assumptions, and that gives a different sort of playing field for a lot of Dante's moral arguments and lets him do things like have redemption arcs for homosexuals and not rely on a lot of the kind of overplayed tropes that you get in other hell journeys. That's kind of neat. I've got the Kindle version of that graphic novel, and maybe we should share this in the show notes if we can. If it seems like not a copyright infringement, can I can I share my screen to show you this? I like Virgil. Mm-hmm. He looks stuffy. <laughs> Cute. Yeah, I like how uh, I like how simple it is, and I like I just like this. The I feel like this is way more. <laughs> this is way easier to understand. Yeah, we're, 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 we have a very cute little cartoon diagram that shows how violence against God relates to against our neighbors, against oneself, how fraud and hypocrisy play out. It's a really cute little succinct one-pager uh, that we'll definitely share, along with the source, which is the... It is uh, the... Let me get back to the, what it is. Um, it is... The Dante's Divine Comedy graphic novel by Seymour Chwast. Chwast oh, the left-handed right. artist. Yes, the left-handed artist. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that guy. Indeed. So, a conception of sin here that's kind of fun. Uh, we talk about immodesty. Like having is, your third button undone? Yes, uh, very much so. So, a lot of the causes of physical sin are this concept of immodesty like specifically like lust um, love is fine lust is carrying it two stages too far and then you get to mm. hell um, the desire to eat tasty things is fine but becoming a gourmand and devoting your life to that is a sin that's gluttony mm-hmm. so immodesty is a flexible concept it's not binary that's that's kind of something that's worth holding on to because you're not saying dancing is a sin you're not saying sex is a sin you're saying these things to excess are sins. And I think that's a lot of moral gray that's really valuable. So in any kind of extremism in either direction is bad. Right. Like with the okay. savers and the spenders. Mm-hmm. Like right. It exactly. was that they yeah. were doing harm with what they were doing, not that they were necessarily pushing the economy forward with their shopping habits. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Got it. Hast thou no recollections of these words, which with thine ethics thoroughly discusses the dispositions three that heaven abideth not, incontinence and malice and insane bestiality, and how incontinence, lest God offendeth, and lest blame attracts? If thou regardest this conclusion well, and to thy mind recallest who they are, that up outside are undergoing penance. I keep hitting these really weird line-ins in the Wigglebottom version. <laughs> um, is this a good time to... Ask about insane bestiality? Yes, and sodomy and the what those things actually mean here, because I find this confusing. Uh, we're about to encounter the Minotaur, so you might as well. Okay, so my understanding 
in here is that sodomy is any kind of sex act that does not that is unnatural i.e. not leading to procreation pro- procreative sex right is that right yes which can and in fact include most things a man and wife couple can do actually exactly depending yeah. on you know virtually anything that makes the wife happy in this relationship right so women can't seek pleasure <laughs> in this world because uh that is considered sodomy um and bestiality or bestiality is it i guess the proper pronunciation is bestiality right i'm that's not the sure best pronunciation i know i never know well, i'm gonna call it bestiality because that's what i always say um that does not have to do with putting yourself in a wooden cow and getting it on with a bull. Right. But instead, Which is, so- that would be sodomy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, instead, it has to do with being violent. Like a beast. Yeah, it's, it's, it's this animal rage that, like, you know, murdered someone in caught blood sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. I found that difficult to parse out a few times. Right. And later on, I mean, we, we talk about the sodomites in a, in a few paragraphs, uh, in a few contos, but later on we meet the gays in um, Purgatorio, where they can be redeemed. And they're mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. specifically gay at that point. I haven't gotten there yet. I've never read Purgatorio, but I guess it's on my list. I think we should figure out, like, yeah, what month we should read Purgatory. Uh, I'd say that's a February thing, because Purgative... Febris fever. Ooh, let's yeah. Aim, let's aim for February 2074. I'm with you. Yeah, sure. We'll meet right here. Okay, and also February is just kind of one of those months. Like it, it just seems kind of like purgatory. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, no. Sodomy is not necessarily about sodomy. Bestiality is not necessarily about bestiality. Bestiality is about sodomy. Hmm. Are we clear? Like mud. I feel like, again, this is a great kind of jaunty little number in our musical. <laughs> sodomy, not sodomy. Where there's like, you know, just like all these confused figures running around the stage trying to, like, what are we... Sp- I, I could see, like, Tom Lehrer explaining it all. Right. It would be like the voice for that. Exactly. Like the, the new math song. <laughs> or it could be They Might Be Giant song. Yes, that would also work. That'd be very, mm-hmm. very... Yes. <laughs> Canto 12, Centaur Rage. Oh, yes. Okay. Speaking about sodomy slash bestiality. Can I read you a really funny line in my translation? Sure. Okay. So this is the line where this is the head centaur. They're, they're talking to the head centaur. Nessus. We drew near those swift beasts in a thoughtful pause. Is it Chiron? Chiron? The head head centaur, drew an arrow, and with its notch, he pushed his great beard back along his jaws. And when he had thus uncovered the huge pouches of his lips, he said to his fellows, Have you noticed how the one who walks behind moves what he touches? This is not how the dead go. Oh, because he's not a shade. Uh-huh. But that was such a funny way to do that. Quite a lead-in. Yeah. And I just imagine this kind of, you know, like some kind of like, have you noticed how the one who walks behind moves what he touches? This is not how the dead goes. <laughs> I thought he actually, like, drew an arrow in his sketchbook with a green crayon. And when you were explaining this, I was like, that doesn't make sense. 
He did that and then moved his... Yeah. Like, with the picture of the arrow, moved his beard aside. Oh, if I need to specifically say it, please do not color in my Burke translation of the Inferno. I just got that. I wish you told me that this morning. <laughs> no. Oh, damn it. Oh, this is the one with the uh, the Minotaur gyro stand. It's, uh... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's cute. I can't see anything. Uh, no, they can't. Imagine that centaur, like, looking like Sweetums from, um... The Muppets, the big monster guy with the big beard. Or like anyone from Centaur World. Yes. Uh-huh. Very, very pink llama sort of look. <laughs> Alpaca, fluffy, my little kitty-ish. The travelers scale down the cliff into some rubble that's more mess from the harrowing. The Minotaur tries to block their path, but Virgil uses his words. There are so many centaurs running around, it's like an episode of My Little Pony. And they're mostly <laughs> trying to keep angry people in a river boiling blood. We go on a sightseeing tour of submerged tyrants and then on to Canto 13. Okay. So a couple of things. It's oh, worth noting. Wait. Sorry. Let me let me go back a step. This this may not be part of this, but as we got near to the centaurs, the one called Chiron slotted an arrow and drew his bow back so far that it parted his beard on his chin. So it wasn't that he took an arrow and he was like, it was he took it and he was like this, and he drew his thing so far it did his beard. Okay. Okay. Did that, that makes make sense? way more sense. Yeah. <laughs> I wish that may not that, that might not get in, but it makes sense. Like seeing me do that with my beard. Yes, absolutely. It really did. Your yeah, your your is, long luxurious this beard. This is the best podcasting. Um, <laughs> so a tie into Kanto one, the wolf. Uh, for the first time in this paragraph, Dante uses the word cupidigia, cupidigia, c u p i d g i a, um, cupidity, which is. Greed that's so great that it blinds us to our actions. Oh, right. Okay. That is kind of the beginning of a lot of these sins of the body, just losing perspective, becoming irrational based on this deep desire. And this is kind of the biggest gateway to hell. The wolf, the starving wolf in Canto One, is kind of the symbol of that and was Dante's biggest menace when he was climbing up and down the mountain over and over again. Okay, okay, that makes that makes sense. Canto 13? Let's do it. I love this one. This one this one is like, of this batch, this one is my favorite. The Wood of the Self-Murderers. Mm-hmm. And Virgil is a jerk. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he's a terrible jerk, like encouraging Dante to break branches. Yeah. Yeah. Off the poor trees. <laughs> so we're oh further into the circle of violence. This is violence against the self. We meet a forest of twisted trees and horrible harpies. Knowing that these are suicides transformed into trees, Virgil plays one of his funny, oh, that Virgil jokes, and gets Dante to break a branch off of one of them. And of course, it screams and bleeds. Ouchie. Charming. This is also in the Sandman comic. We, we like that comic a lot. Where mm-hmm. There's a scene where Sandman is taking his tour of hell, and the camera pulls back, and you see there's this these hills covered in trees saying, oh, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. And he says... The woods of suicide has changed since my last visit to hell. I remember it as a tiny grove, and now it resembles a forest. Anyway, mm-hmm. dreaming reference, we got to make those when we can. Oh, yeah, for sure. And also, again, Wizard of Oz, when they're in the, the forest and Dorothy pulls the apple off the tree, and they're saying, how would you like it if somebody came and pulled things off of you? A bit of that. Mm-hmm. But we need to do the Carol Inferno before we tackle the Bomb Inferno. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I guess you're right. You're right. right. So, okay, I'm, I'm adding that to the list. So this scenario postulates that when someone takes their own life, they return as a 
tree in this forest of the self-murdered and harpies come down and eat the leaves from the tree so they suffer eternal torment until until the millennium when all of the sinners we've met so far will be reunited with their bodies except for the suicides because their bodies are going to hang from their branches (laughs) as a dark reminder of that which they tried to separate themselves from Aren't you so glad that we kind of are better <laughs> dealing with mental illness? A little bit. I mean, <laughs> so this is a, a nice little slam against Cartesian dualism. <laughs> it's just so awful. It's moderately so awful. awful. <laughs> oh. One one thing that Dante is kind of challenging here is the idea that the body and soul can ever be separated. Because this that's kind of a harmful idea on its own, this idea that the soul is some higher thing and the body is base and they shouldn't be you should preserve the soul and not worry about the body. This says that they are one thing and in death they cannot be separated. So it's kind of emphasize that there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know about the two naked men being chased by a wolf. That's the thing that happens. Yeah. So okay, so I have a couple of questions that are related to that. So one, so there's some discussion of the sin of violent wasting. And it's the translation I have refers to it as a fad of violent wasting, scandalously prevalent in Dante's Florence. Oh, the eighties. Okay. So conspicuous um, consumption, conspicuous consumption that leads to death, right? Like, and and the way I understood it here was that it's so destructive Ah. that topical it's the squid games oh yeah okay okay so it is kind of this if you can't maintain this lifestyle and and there are true stories of this happening in dante's florence it sounds like once you spend all your money you just kill yourself oh what so it's kind of like in poverty you don't oh choose to live yeah Mm -hmm. so here's here's how it explains so the dogs may be taken as symbolizing conscience, the last besieging creditors of the damned who must satisfy their claims by dividing their wretched bodies since nothing else has left them. So it's not simply prodigality that places them here, but the violence of their wasting. Hmm. Or I guess maybe I'm misunderstanding. So it's just that they're so profligate that led to potentially like dying of excess. Are these the two naked men? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And one of them is truly awful. One of them deserves to get ripped apart. So one of them is Lano, okay, that is chased by the wolf, by the dogs. So he's a famous, famous squanderer. Um, so Boccaccio writes that uh, Lano deliberately courted death, having squandered all of his great wealth and being unwilling to live on in poverty. Jacopo is the other one mm-hmm. who was the wealthiest private citizen in Padua, who would do things like throw money into a river and set fire to all the cottages on his estate to provide a spectacular welcome for his dinner guests. <laughs> yeah, he deserves to get he deserves to get ripped apart by dogs. He was actually executed later on, so that's that's maybe a positive thing. By someone who we see bubbling in the river of blood. So hey. Hey. Yeah. Circle of life. So one thing that suicides make me think of is party games. Wait, mm-hmm, let me mm-hmm, try that again. Yep. Party games make me think of suicide. <laughs> Oh, much more. <laughs> okay. okay, not inviting Ooh. Jacob to game night. Ooh. No. So uh, I have a little game. Mm. It involves parts of speech. Ooh, Jared. okay. Sad libs? Yes, sad libs. 
May I have an adjective, please? Jaunty. Part of the body. Flangy. <laughs> Famous fictional person. Sherlock Holmes. Place. Paris, Texas. Number. Threve. Threve? Threve. Another famous fictional person. Abraham Lincoln. Never heard of him. Noun. Widget. Verb intransitive. This is your moment, Jamin. I can't get these straight. It's it's the one you always use. Hoon. Hoon. <laughs> plant. A plant? A plant. Um, okay. Robert. <laughs> no. You're Robert. No. <laughs> Yucca. Mm. Place. Athens, Texas. No, like a, a non-specific place. Oh, uh, Whataburger. Sure. <laughs> Noun. Schooner. What? Schooner. Like a boat. Okay. Creature. Cat. Okay, this one's a little weird. Part of a plant. Stamen. A noun, but specifically like a concept or idea, an immaterial noun. Onomatopoeia. Noun plural. Chuckles. Perfect. Verb transitive. I hate understanding. I'm supposed to be the language guy. I cannot. A verb transitive takes an object. Mm-hmm. Where does it take it? To the dance. Pass. Pommel. Noun. Aluminum can. Adjective. Sudsy. <laughs> Noun. Peat moss. Verb transitive. Tickle. Part of body. Frenulum. What is that? It's somewhere between your pate and your flange. Okay, that's fair. So this is the scene where the tree in the woods of the self-murdered explains its situation. Okay, all right. When the jaunty phalange abandons the body which it rent itself away... Sherlock Holmes consigns it to the three of abyss. <laughs> it falls into Paris, Texas, and no part is chosen for it, but where Abraham Lincoln hurls it, there, like a widget, it hoons. It follows. It springs a yucca and a Whataburger schooner. <laughs> the cat, feeding then upon its stamen, does onomatopoeia create... <laughs> and for the onomatopoeic, an outlet. Like others, for our chuckles, we shall return. But not that any one of them may pummel, for tis not just to have aluminum cans. <laughs> Here we shall drag them, and along the sudsy waterburger our peat moss shall tickled be, each to the thorn of his molested frenulum. <laughs> bravo, bravo. I, I, thought, I thought we were doing a mad lib, a sad lib, that's a... Uh... That's the translation I have. <laughs> yeah, the Whataburger <laughs> might actually be in there. <laughs> so, this is a confessional. We tried to keep our podcast entertaining first and educational second, and Kanto's 14 through 16 were very hard for us to keep lively. It was like reading the begats in the Bible. So, rather than subjecting you to your hosts searching Google and Wikipedia to pull some comedy out of a very difficult text... I'm going to just skip the dead air and condense 45 minutes down to maybe 5, maybe 10. Thank you for your understanding. It's better this way. Canto 14? Mm-hmm. Everything's on fire. Fire! So this is where I started to lose my marbles. Okay. okay. I'm very thankful that we will have a guest on soon 
to walk us through some of the more interesting bits because I just I couldn't I couldn't handle the everything. Mm-hmm. This is the old man of Crete situation. E- yes. Correct. Yes. Okay. My entire thoughts on Canto fourteen. We'll begin with a desert of suffering souls where the fire drifts down like snow. We talk about rivers, statues, and then get some purgatory. Mm-hmm. That's essentially it. That's all I have. Is this where the, and maybe our expert can answer this question for me, but is this where we get the phrase, cry me a river? I, I don't know. I'm going to make a note to make sure to waste the expert's time with that question. I think it, I think it I think it must be from Dante. I think so too. I mean that is what I'm gonna go with that, that is where mm-hmm. ultimately this comes from. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm sad. Yeah, we we learned that basically uh history is terrible. The world is getting worse every day because of the millennials and all of hell is our own making. It scans. It yeah. scans. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's boomer talk. Canto 15? Yay. What? Canto 15, A Quiet Moment with Brunetto. Who praises Dante? Doesn't everybody, though? <laughs> oh, Dante. I love your hat. Good job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dante meets his former mentor in a passage which is simultaneously sympathetic and does, of course, condemn the poor guy to hell. This is the circle of violence against the self, or is it the circle of violence against God? I don't remember which. It's kind of similar to This is the, the sodomites. Right. So it's violence against nature. Okay, which is sort of God, sort of, I think. Sure. Brunetto represents the sodomites, which is kind of a catch-all bucket, but the specific case is the gays, who have to run forever or the fire will catch them. But Mm -hmm. would you look at that trophy ass? Uh, You can tell he works out. (laughs) In almost every treatment of sexual sin, there's like a strong genitalia-based torment element. Like in... Tundale, where we deal with the lecherous priests, they are eaten and then excreted, and then worms burst in their bellies as if they're pregnant, uh, and also from other members as well. Um, and yeah, and there's a picture that there's a picture of the Collegiate de San Gimigiano, Gimigiano called Hell, the Sodomites, or Adultery. It's a series of like pictures of torments, and you know one person is being caressed by a very wolfy demon, and another is being skewered through the bum and out the mouth and in somebody else's mouth. It's very phallic. And this is kind of more progressive because this is a contrapasso torment about a sin that's not sexual. It's just the idea of kind of being driven by desire playing out. Hmm. Much like the whirlwind, is a sin, lust is not a sin that's tormented by pitchforks to the groin. It's this image of like being swirled around by one's desires again. Gotcha. So it's more about the desire than it is the physical act. Yes, yes. And so in some ways, because that desire... Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to think about that more. Like, the, the intention is not to act against nature. It's just, you. it's an overwhelming, uncontrollable passion. Yeah, and I feel like, okay. up, at least up to this point, most of the tortures we've seen have been not very lurid. I understand that changes a bit as we progress forward. And get into the darker circles of hell. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it's just kind of living in, in a horrible state or burbling under the mud or burning. But nothing really graphically gruesome yet. Yeah. I do have to say that in my translation, one of my new favorite phrases is roving band of sodomites. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> <laughs> hmm. 
But on the other side, again, 1950s, kind of problematic translation. In explaining sodomy and bestiality, the translator kind of makes a joke and uses animal lovers in quotes. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. That's 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 ooky. Discomforting. Yeah, it's very ooky. I do think that Roving Band of Sodomites would be a really good random encounter in D&D. <gasps> yes. You encounter 2D6 sodomites. That's right. I mean, what kind of hit points would they have? See, I'm ashamed of both of you for not immediately realizing the beauty of this as the name of our next punk band. Or is it more of like a blues traveler cover blues, band? Yes, the roving band of sodomites with Victoria on harmonica. <laughs> I'll play the spoons. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, this is something I, I just learned about Jacob. Wait, you've known him for how long? You didn't know about the spoons? I did not know about the spoons. I feel like Jacob is a mystery that just keeps unfolding. He, oh, yes. the spoon, the depths of the <laughs> spoons. We do have a lot of spoons in our house. Kind of 16. This one was almost the worst. In my summary, I have, I really don't know. That's all I have there. I think the one thing that stood out to me in this violence, uh, so it's the one violence against nature and art, and I was baffled by it too, but what I find most interesting about it has absolutely nothing to do with the content, but instead this long list of people that Dante is claiming are sodomites, and yet there's no either nothing really known about that person, None or he's the them. only person. <laughs> None of them are on Growler. <laughs> exactly. And so why, and we'll never know this, like why is he claiming all these people are sodomites when nobody else is, or there's no evidence whatsoever of this person? Yeah, yeah. It's just kind of like calling them out for the sake of calling them out. This is like being in the begats in the Bible. Right. Like yeah. it's just, mm -hmm. it's, I mean, when we get too far into personal story that someone should, you know, obviously I should know this because I'm totally a 1350s Florentian. I hope we go to a better place. There is a sea monster rising from the depths, so I'm <gasps> hoping I'm hoping 17 brings us to a better place. Can we can we talk about that for a bit? Because the cord it confused me. So in in my two translations, they both are I had a cord around me and I had a belt around me, and Virgil's like, "Give me the belt," and he just tosses it off the cliff. Right? What I originally thought was he's like, "Okay, there's a cord." You hold on to one end, and I'll hold the other end, and the masked man is going to come up, like the Spaniard, right? He's going to climb up the cliff on this. You know, it's like, hello, you killed my father. Prepare to die. But no, mm -hmm. he just throws the freaking belt. He just yeets it off the cliff. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. He just throws it in. He's just looking for something to throw. They don't really have much in the way of possessions. I mean, they haven't, like, picked up a quest item or something like that three levels up. I guess. I guess. <laughs> um, they, I mean, they could throw his hat in. That'd be kind of nice. I don't like that hat. It's kind of terrible. Yeah. I sort of see this as that moment in, um, uh, it's in, like, the, is it in the Creepshow movie where it's, you know, Dan Aykroyd turns to the other ambulance driver and says, like, you want to see something really scary? And I feel like like Virgil is kind of doing this kind of like, okay, okay, mm, I'm going to try to get mm. your attention back and show you this this cool trick that I have. I felt like there's a lot of wind up and Virgil's like waiting for like, yeah, it's cool. It's cool, right? It's cool. Well, it is. Um, I mean, big monster thing. 
but also I can't help but think that this uh <laughs> this 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 cord being thrown off a cliff is also a loose narrative thread. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Give me your belt. <laughs> what are you gonna do with it? Uh just just wait. It's gonna be cool. <laughs> well listeners, if you can just wait till next week, we'll catch you in Canto Seventeen. We'll catch you in Cantos seventeen through twenty two. And uh, until then, please like us, please subscribe, please Please recommend us to your friends, and we'll see you in the Inferno. Woohoo! Yay! This podcast is copyright 2021 by The Dispatchist and its Creative Commons. You're welcome to reuse with attribution. Look for us on your favorite podcast app. Say hi to us on Twitter or Gmail at the Dispatchist, no spaces. Check out our website, dispatch.ist, for more episodes, show notes, and a variety of hellish resources.